Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 20, Shakira Sanders, The Value of Confrontation as a Felony Sentencing Right. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Shakira Sanders. Shakira is Associate Professor of Law at the University of Idaho College of Law. Shakira teaches and writes in the areas of constitutional law and criminal procedure, with a recent focus on confrontation. Today's podcast features Shakira's recent article, The Value of Confrontation as a Felony Sentencing Right which was written for a symposium published in the Widener Law Journal. In the article, Shakira builds on previous work in which she advocates for extending the confrontation clause beyond the trial context, in this case, to felony sentencing hearings. Given the dominance of plea bargaining and the rise of determinate sentencing schemes, Shakira argues that to give practical effect to the confrontation clause, courts need to consider extending confrontation to the sentencing context. To defend her proposal, Shakira offers both textual and policy arguments for the change, as well as explores its practical ramifications. Shakira, thanks a lot for being on Excited Utterance. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Your article links criminal procedure and evidence by discussing the application of the Confrontation Clause to the sentencing context. Just so that everyone is familiar with the current doctrine, tell us a little bit about the current state of the law as expressed by the Supreme Court in Williams v. New York. Does confrontation apply in the sentencing context, and why or why not? Williams v. New York is a 1949 decision that challenged the use of evidence that had never been presented at trial at a criminal sentencing hearing. In that case, the United States Supreme Court made clear that the rules of evidence don't apply at criminal sentencing and rights contained in the United States Constitution don't necessarily apply at criminal sentencing as well. Now, like I said, Williams was decided in 1949, so that was prior to the Confrontation Clause even applying to states. And so the Williams case was a due process case, not exactly a Sixth Amendment confrontation clause case. And why did the Supreme Court decide not to apply it to the sentencing context as opposed to, say, the trial context? Well, first, the court didn't want to tie the hands of sentencing courts. And the court sort of adopted this idea that since the founding of America, the United States, and even if you look at English common law, it was not uncommon for judges to consider all types of evidence in determining what a proper sentence was. That was one rationale, is that there's a historical practice of looking at outside evidence. The other rationale was that we don't want to bog courts down in sort of evidentiary proceedings at the criminal sentencing hearing. Again, this idea that we've already had a trial, the individual has already been found guilty, and therefore you have 
fewer rights at play because you're actually a convicted person at that point. You argue that Williams should be overruled, and the first reason is one that involves textual analysis, comparing confrontation to other Sixth Amendment rights. Can you tell us a little bit more about that argument? So interestingly enough, when you look at the Sixth Amendment, it contains this six to seven procedural rights. I have focused on three in particular, the right to have an attorney, the right to a jury trial, and the right to confrontation. Now, all three of those rights were originally deemed to not apply at criminal sentencing. The first of those rights, the right to counsel, is the first one the court said did apply at sentencing. And that was a case, MIFA versus Ray in the 1950s. The court said, we actually do think that individuals have a right to counsel that should at sentencing because sentencing is a critical stage of the criminal prosecution. The second of those rights, the right to a jury trial, is one that we've seen in the last decade, the court being open to some type of application at criminal sentencing hearings. And this is the Apprendi, Booker, Elin line of cases that begin at the turn of the century, around 1999-2000 era. And there the court had a theory that if a sentencing judge is mandated to find facts at criminal sentencing, then there should be a jury because generally it is the jury's job to find facts and to judge the truth and veracity of all of the testimony before it. So my argument is that looking at these other parallel rights contained in the Sixth Amendment and thinking about the interrelationship between the right to counsel, the right to jury, and the right to confrontation, then there seems to be some viable arguments for extending the right to confrontation to sentencing in the same way we have the right to counsel, and the right to jury. And this sort of involves the Williams case because, again, that was a pre-incorporation case before any of these rights actually applied at trial against states during a trial. And so my argument is that, well, there may be room to reconsider Williams in light of the Crawford line of confrontation cases, which says, yes, we have hearsay exceptions, Yes, in the past we've said confrontation was preferred instead of mandated, but now we find that the hearsay exceptions have taken over the confrontation right itself, and we're going to go back and say it's probably better that individuals at trial have the right to confrontation as opposed to simply a preference for face-to-face confrontation. So I think the Crawford case, the way it changes confrontation at trial, has led me to believe that there is some room for confrontation's application at sentencing. Beyond the textual argument, you also make a contextual argument, which is that to the extent the criminal justice system has shifted from indeterminate sentencing to determinate sentencing, the division between the trial and the sentencing phase no longer makes sense. Why is that? Part of that has caused me to reflect on criminal sentencing at the time of the founding, back in the late 1700s. What many scholars have been sort of discussing over the last 
10 or 15 years is this idea that at the time of the founding, there was no separate sentencing phase in a criminal case. What happened is that you had a trial, the jury determined that you were guilty, and with that guilty sentence came a very specific sentence. Now, at that time, for most felonies, that sentence actually happened to be death. So there was not a lot for the judge to consider when it came time to announce that sentence. Now, of course, over time, we've modified our criminal justice system to have a separate trial and a separate sentencing phase. My argument is that just because we have this modern development does not mean that the Sixth Amendment's Confrontation Clause should not apply at sentencing. In addition, when we look at the entirety of the framework that the founders created, it seems logical that they would think that the right to counsel, the right to a jury, and the right to confront evidence kind of go hand in hand, that each sort of enhances the other. You need the attorney to present the information to the jury. And it is the jury, through vehicles like confrontation, evaluate the truth and veracity of all of the information brought before it. So some of my argument really is this idea that it is likely our framers did not foresee an entirely separate sentencing phase. But despite that fact, there should be some recognition of the confrontation right at sentencing since we shifted the procedure that existed at the time of the founding. And in many ways, we didn't just shift the sentencing as being an additional phase. We've also shifted to a plea bargaining world in addition to having sentencing. So you make an argument that in a world without trials, the only way to operationalize confrontation is in fact to apply it to this sentencing context, that to ensure some level of accuracy we need to vet facts, and the place where facts come up now is not during trial, but actually during sentencing. Do I have that right? Exactly. And a lot of that is informed by some of our recent jurisprudence, and particularly the case Missouri versus Fry. There you had Justice Kennedy acknowledging that, hey, the game nowadays is sentencing. Over 90% of cases in both state and federal courts are not resolved through a trial. They're resolved through a plea of guilty and then a criminal sentencing phase. And in those jurisdictions that sort of have the pre-sentence report where you have some type of investigator or probation officer or someone from a sentencing commission who sort of goes and gathers evidence, maybe they're getting statements about a defendant that had never been presented either in an indictment or any other type of document. The plea agreement may not fully lay out all of the factual circumstances of the case, it is in those circumstances that I argue perhaps we should consider the possibility of confrontation. Now, I think that there are some natural limits that are placed on the rules. And if we look at Crawford and if we look at the jurisprudence that developed out of the jury trial right at sentencing, particularly Apprendi, Booker, and Alin, we can develop a workable framework for determining when confrontation should be allowed at sentencing and when it should not. Are you also suggesting by implication that the federal rules of evidence or rules of evidence generally should apply to sentencing hearings as well? Obviously, in moving away from confrontation, we lose the constitutional dimension that you're talking about. 
but at least as a matter of policy, should the rules of evidence also apply to improve the accuracy? I think some of the rules of evidence would certainly be helpful for us to improve the accuracy of the information that comes in at sentencing. But to be clear, my argument is that confrontation is the most important rule that we should apply at criminal sentencing hearings. So let me broaden the discussion a little bit and push you on the proposal in a variety of different ways. The first criticism that one can imagine of your proposal is that imposing the confrontation clause here would eliminate a lot of the benefits of plea bargaining. You're basically recreating litigation at the sentencing level, and litigation at any level is what plea bargaining was intended to remove. Will this change the incentives that prosecutors and in many ways defense counsel have to plea? I actually think this could improve plea bargaining to the extent that it could allow both sides to evaluate the ability to successfully defend the evidence that comes in. It could create perhaps some different incentives to be clear, but I think in many ways it could improve the plea bargaining process, encourage both sides to agree more on what these relevant and material facts are that should apply to the sentence. In that situation, I don't think that the benefits of plea bargaining would be eliminated. I think in many ways, plea bargaining could be improved with the ability to cross-examine the evidence that a prosecutor would like to submit in support of the sentence. Let's say a prosecutor doesn't like your proposal. Is there anything that's going to prevent the prosecution from requiring a waiver of this right before proceeding with a plea bargain. And I'll anticipate your answer and say, if you make it non-waivable, why should confrontation at sentencing be a right that can't be waived when basically we allow defendants to waive all kinds of additional rights? actually would agree that confrontation is a right that could be waived along with other rights. Another way that I think plea bargaining could be improved is that both sides sort of come together, agree on what the facts are that affect sentencing, and actually include that information in the plea bargain itself. And that way, there's very little to argue about at the actual sentencing hearing. And I think that would allow the court to really evaluate sort of, okay, what have the parties agreed on? And now do I actually need any more information to impose the suggested sentence? So in this sense, it would better help a judge to evaluate whether disputed evidence is actually material or would assist the trier of fact at sentencing if the parties came together more and really nail down and hammer out the facts that applied to the defendant's sentence. So give me a picture as to how this would work as opposed to how it currently works. What changes about sentencing hearings if what you're proposing actually happens. So you're envisioning that there is actually some bargaining that occurs behind the scenes, that in fact, you may not actually have the actual exercise of the confrontation right, but that the parties do hash out factual material. How is that different from how things work today? Currently, and, and of course, with the understanding that every jurisdiction operates quite differently and finding what a norm is 
can be a little bit difficult. But from my experience as a public defender, oftentimes the parties come together to agree on the charge. So what is that charge defense, right? Is it subsection A, subsection B, section whatever? And so you have an agreement on what the charge defense is. A defendant goes to plead guilty and they tend to basically give a very short factual statement and tell the judge that they agree that they committed X crime with X elements. What doesn't seem to happen is a discussion of, well, in the commission of that crime, did you do things like maybe brandish a weapon, which is a very popular sentencing enhancement. There's very little discussion oftentimes about an actual motivation for a crime. So many criminal sentencing guidelines have enhancements for motivations based on gender, race, religion, and those other types of similar categories. Probing a defendant about that type of information does not always happen when those facts are not part of the actual charge, but instead are only sentencing enhancements. So what I hope would happen is that the defendants and prosecutors, before they even agree on the charge, or at the time that they create the plea bargaining agreement, that there is more of a mindfulness about the actual factual details of that charge and the defendant's criminal history that individuals can agree upon. Where that happens, then the judge can simply accept that agreement and allocate the proper amount of enhancement point or whatever towards the sentence as opposed to getting a report from somebody from the probation office or whatever agency is responsible for creating the pre-sentencing report, seeing statements that may have come from second or third hand between the person who prepares the report. Maybe there's a victim statement. Maybe there's a conversation with a prior victim. This information goes into the report and the judge has to make a decision without ever really talking to the accusers. If there were a way to either get those accusers into court or have the parties agree that the information the accuser has given was accurate, then I don't think that there would be too many situations where criminal sentencing hearings would become lengthier or take too much time such that they eliminate the benefits of plea bargaining. Would it be fair to say then that your proposal is to make the sentencing stage more adversarial than it is currently. The way sentencing works now is inquisitorial because the probationary officer produces a report. That's effectively the court doing some kind of research. And then the judge imposes the sentence. And what you would like to see is that the parties duke it out. And they don't have to duke it out in open court in a litigious fashion, but they at least have to agree in some kind of bargaining context on what the facts are going to be. Yes, I think that that would be preferable, primarily because, again, that true adversarial part of our criminal cases no longer occurs, the trial. And I have argued that the adversarial process doesn't end at the time an individual pleads guilty or is found guilty by a judge or jury. I think the adversarial process in the modern American criminal justice system actually begins at sentencing. And with the lack of the right to confront adversarial evidence, in many ways, sentencing can feel like it's sentencing by ambush from the perspective of the defendant. 
you get a report and all of a sudden information about uncharged crime, crimes, dismissed crimes, even acquitted conduct can come in to affect your sentencing. I think a system that encourages both sides to evaluate this information, come up with some agreements, and then what you can't agree upon goes to the judge as long as it's material and as long as confrontation would assist the trier of fact. Final question for you, Shakira. I tend to ask this question of many of our guests. What's the further work that you see that needs to be done in this space? Well, my next project is actually one that I'm really excited about, and I'm attempting to go back to the Williams case. And looking at this case, I find myself with many different thoughts, and I'll just share some of those with you. The Williams case concerned a 1949 murder of a young 15-year-old Caucasian girl in her family's home in Brooklyn, New York. Several months after the murder, a young 18-year-old disabled African-American male was ultimately charged with the murder, and he confessed to that murder after 18 hours of interrogation where he didn't have the assistance of counsel or any other criminal procedure types of rights. Mr. Williams went to trial in his case because he argued he had been coerced into confessing because he was physically abused by law enforcement. The jury rejected that argument, sentenced him to life in prison, and he goes to a sentencing hearing where he is given a death sentence after the judge considered 30 uncharged accusations of burglary from law enforcement, in addition to information that he was a sexual predator. Again, information that was never confronted at trial, information that he was never charged with in a prior case. The sentencing judge considered all of that evidence and found that Mr. Williams was a menace to society. In addition, that Mr. Williams was a sexual predator and a sexual deviant, and therefore the jury would have never agreed to a life sentence had they known about his past. So ultimately, he loses his appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. A year later, the governor of New York commutes his sentence back to life. Fifteen years later, in the 1960s, he's ultimately released on a habeas corpus petition because the court did find on habeas that his confession was invalid because it was coerced. About a decade after he's released from prison, he receives a civil judgment against the state of New York, and the jury there found that there was never any reason to suspect him of murder or any other type of crime. And so here we have this irony to some degree that the case that stands for our ability to trust judges to get it right when they're make, calling those balls and strikes at sentencing is the same case that in actuality stands for the exact opposite, that maybe judges don't always make the best decisions. Maybe mistakes oftentimes are made. Maybe some of the evidence that is used to sentence individuals is not reliable evidence and many miscarriages of justice could result. And so my future work in this area is really digging into the facts and circumstances of Mr. Williams's case, of maybe tracking down and seeing how things developed over time, determining what his experiences were like while he was imprisoned and after he was released, 
and hopefully urging the court to find another case to cite for the proposition that confrontation is unnecessary at criminal sentencing, considering the subsequent history of this case, which also carries quite a few racial undercurrents that to some degree make Williams incredibly relevant today. Well, I'll certainly look forward to this historical work on Williams v. New York. And thanks, Shakira, for joining us on Excited Utterance. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. In support of her thesis that the confrontation right should extend to the sentencing context, Shakira makes two insightful observations. First, trial and sentencing, at least as a matter of historical practice, were a single entity. If the confrontation right once applied to this unified whole, then it should accordingly apply to its deconstructed parts. The mere fact that modern practice has bifurcated the liability phase and the sentencing phase should not alter the scope of the confrontation right. Second, in harmony with our earlier podcast with Stephanos Bibas, where we discussed how procedural and evidentiary rules should broadly evolve to promote accuracy in a plea bargaining world, Shakira has given us a great example on how to do precisely that using the confrontation clause. The world that Shakira envisions is a plausible one. Having the confrontation clause in play at sentencing does not mean that we would end up with mini-trials at sentencing, an outcome that might be expensive and perhaps undesirable. Instead, in keeping with the spirit of plea bargaining, extension of the confrontation clause would push prosecutors and defense attorneys to bargain on sentencing enhancements turning what is currently a more inquisitorial, judicially-driven process to a more adversarial, party-driven one. Is this a normatively preferable regime? I think it's at least plausibly so, and Shakira may have just provided enough historical and policy justifications to nudge courts in that direction. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.